0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox, and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm
2: Abby Hornacek.
3: This is Dr. Carlson.
2: And I'm Jessica Tarlov. This is the Fox News Rundown.
4: Monday, March 7th, 2022, on am Mike Emanuel. More than 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees have fled their country since Russia invaded. As that number climbs, the capacity to handle this refugee crisis becomes uncertain. There's absolutely going to be a test
2: if this turns into a longer term crisis, a test of, of the, the capabilities to handle the outflow but also a political test if this does turn into
3: millions and millions of of people. I'm Chris Foster. The strong job market and people making more money is contributing to inflation, and that has interest rates about to go up.
1: It's unclear how far they're going to go up because inflation running at north of 7%, which is uh, the highest in decades, that's a big number to tame.
0: And I'm Anthony Penny. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
4: Since Russian President Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine, millions of people have had their lives turned upside down. With husbands and fathers staying to defend their beloved Ukraine, many women and children have been forced to leave with no idea where they'll end up or for how long. Fox News Radio Simon Owen spoke with Irina, a refugee who, like thousands of others... Plans on returning to Ukraine after conflict with Russia subsides.
5: When uh, uh, war finish, we come back in Ukraine. We want to come back in
3: normal Ukraine.
4: Though before Ukrainians like Irina can focus on a homecoming, they must first face the long journey ahead. For those like Lena, another refugee interviewed by Owen. The anxiety surrounding the road ahead is clear.
6: People was nervous, too nervous, because they don't know how is it going with their family, where them? We just don't know what to do, what to do, where we go.
4: Meanwhile, in the United States, resources for Ukrainian refugees are being sent overseas, along with nationwide compassion. America's top diplomat Tony Blinken was in Moldova Sunday, offering support from the U.S. and praise for Moldova for stepping up to help Ukrainians during this crisis.
5: We are dealing with an egregious aggression by Russia against Ukraine, but an aggression that, of course, is having a
1: horrific impact on the Ukrainian people.
4: As Ukrainians continue fleeing to escape Russian violence, millions across the globe remain hopeful that refugees will find safety and solace at the hands of allies in Poland, Romania and Moldova, where the majority of Ukrainians are escaping too.
2: So we've been at a couple of the points where the refugees are heading when they enter Poland and of all of the huge numbers that different countries around this region are reporting for people crossing their borders. Poland seems to be getting about half of the total. There's a number of border crossings up the west side of Ukraine.
4: Simon Owen is a Fox News Radio foreign correspondent on assignment in Poland. So
2: we've been down at one called Kochova, And further in from here is a city called Przemysl. And Przemysl has an old train station, which has basically turned into a makeshift shelter for people. They get off the train by their hundreds. The trains are normally hours late. What should be an hour journey might have taken six or seven or even more. People are exhausted. It's mostly women and children. And in a lot of cases, these are separated families because an order's gone out that that men are not allowed to leave Ukraine in case Mm -hmm. they needed to fight. And then it's a similar story here where we are at Krochova, which is right on the border. This is one of those points where you're going to be actually crossing over. And right by the border is this setup in a kind of giant sort of trade warehouse that's been converted into, into a shelter for people. And you go inside and there are just thousands of cots and they're arranged in lines stretching as far as the eye can see. And when we've been walking around, they all appear to be taken. And you see people sleeping you see people collecting supplies like toothbrushes there are kids wandering around carrying Mm -hmm. their stuffed animals and generally when you talk to people the message is there's a combination there's firstly there's the exhaustion Mm -hmm. for a lot of people particularly if they've crossed from kiev or, or further east in ukraine they may well have been on the road for five or six days and for a lot of that time it's one parent looking after a number of young children There's also a very conscious gratitude to the people of Poland. And this is a country that in years gone by has not necessarily had a reputation in recent years for welcoming refugees. But it really has thrown its doors open on this occasion. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely this sense of gratitude to the Poles for for opening the doors. And then when you dig beneath all that, you know, there's a, a lot of trauma here. People have gone through a lot over the past couple of weeks, you know, they're really feeling the speed with which this has erupted. But I think, I'm not sure really many people in Ukraine were expecting a full-blown war across the country, and yet it's happened, and within a week or so, we've had not just a trickle of people leaving, but what's now starting to look like an exodus.
4: So gratitude for the polls. Are you seeing some tears? Are you seeing some signs of despair? Moms, perhaps with small children who don't know if or when they're going to get to see their husbands again, because their husbands had to stay behind and fight.
2: Yeah, and it could be a long time. And it's been pretty heartbreaking for some people. And I think there's perhaps a bit of maybe you call it shock at the moment, just that this hasn't quite sunk in, everything that's, that's going on, how quickly life has changed, and mm-hmm. suddenly your home is not necessarily your home anymore. And so a lot of people have, have said to me, almost without me asking, they've been saying, but when this is over, we're going back. We want to go back to Ukraine when it's normal again. They just didn't feel it was right to stay there at the moment when things were so dangerous and, and so volatile.
4: It also makes you wonder when it's all over, whenever that is, will there be anything to go home to? Will their homes be existing? Will businesses where they worked still exist? Or will the cities where they come from all be rubble? You hear anything about that?
2: You know, I was in Kiev a few weeks ago, just before the invasion started. And the sense then was even though the U.S. was saying that they felt that a war was, was imminent, Ukrainians weren't necessarily buying it. And when you spoke to Ukrainians back then, most people I spoke to were saying, yeah, you know, we've had eight years of Russia waging conflict in the east of Ukraine at that point, And the sort of really nasty grinding conflict that had been going on in the Donbass region for so long. And I remember a man saying to me, you know, when you've got Russia as a neighbor, you have to get used to unpleasant surprises, but they didn't necessarily mean anything like this. And so there has been this moment where I'm not sure many people have had time to really take in and compute everything that's changed and how much their life has changed. This place that, that has been home for so long and now suddenly isn't.
4: Have you seen any flashes of anger? I mean, people who are exhausted, who are cold, who are standing in long lines, who are stressed out about leaving their husbands, any temper along the way?
2: You know, in the, in the bits that I've been to, it's, it's been strikingly calm there's definitely emotion. You know, it's hard to see, you know, you walk through the train station at Peshemishal and it's really small. And so it's really crowded and there's hundreds of people there with their sleeping bags and pets and a lot of cats in their boxes Mm -hmm. and whatever luggage they could get with them. But there's been no kind of shouting and screaming that I've seen. I mean, there's been tears, you know, you speak to people and sometimes it gets to the point where there are questions that they just can't answer when you ask them about the relatives that they've left behind. And sometimes, yeah, there comes a point when people just feel that they, they can't quite talk about that. But the facility that we've been at today, this warehouse, which I described with all the all the cots and all of these places to catch some rest and charge your phone and, and get some food. It also feels very dynamic. You know, this isn't necessarily a place where we're expecting people to be dug in for weeks, months, heaven forbid, years on end. This is a place to sort of catch your breath, get mm-hmm. your bearings, and then catch a ride. For a lot of people leaving Ukraine, they, they and I've spoken to people with relatives all over the place, Italy, lots in Poland, um, up to Scandinavia, Germany, So a lot of people have have come here with a plan. They just perhaps need a helping hand getting there, having fled with the suitcase, fled with the family. This is a place to catch up before taking the next step on this, you know, what is turning out to be a really grueling set of journeys.
4: Is there a way to assess the long-term effects of such a large-scale refugee movement for both the countries receiving these Ukrainians, but also to Ukraine itself?
2: Well, I mean... Europe in recent years has had migration crises driven by the Syrian war in particular, Mm. which have not ended well. And they've caused political crises and it's caused difficulties for governments and tensions within the EU. And that's going to ring alarm bells when you see the massive numbers of people that have fled Ukraine and potentially many more to come. And that's going to be a challenge, you know, looking around the facilities we've seen, Poland is, is coping, it seems to me. You know, There seems to be no shortage of supplies. Mm-hmm. And so it's basically, it seems to be working for the time being, but there's absolutely going to be a test if this turns into a longer term crisis, a test of, of the, the capabilities to handle the outflow, but also a political test if this does turn into millions and millions of, of people. You know, yes, it's a huge outflow Ukraine. It's a real issue because a lot of these people will be the people who can afford to go. They'll be the ones with college degrees. That's a problem for your economy when you look to rebuilding it at the eventual mm-hmm. stage after a war. But also, we also have to remember that there's a, a huge amount of people who are left behind. And actually, speaking to a lot of people here, it's not just that they've left behind male relatives who aren't allowed to leave, but also I've spoken to a lot of people in, say, they're sort of roughly about their 30s, who said their parents wouldn't go. And some of them are saying that, well, who's going to look after the dog or whatever else? But it seems that there's a there's a reluctance among a certain age group. And so looking at the people who we've seen here, I mean, we've just seen thousands and thousands over the past few days. The vast majority are women and young children.
4: Any surprises in terms of which countries are welcoming and helping Ukrainian refugees and which may be remaining more hesitant to allow the Ukrainians in?
2: Well yeah I mean this this was really tricky when, when the Syrian migration crisis was was going on because it you know it it didn't rip the EU apart but it definitely caused huge friction between countries when the EU said right this is a European crisis everybody's got to take what we consider to be your fair share and they tried to impose quotas and it went down really badly particularly in eastern Europe now there is perhaps a, a a reality there that that people feel that they can relate more to people who are fleeing europe and this perhaps feels like more of an immediate crisis particularly to people in eastern europe because you know countries like poland are gravely concerned by what they're seeing happening in ukraine by the fact that they are seeing president putin doing something that i think most people didn't think he would ever do to attack a european country of this size on this scale and that is forcing recalibrations and recalculations of, of of where people in this part of the world think president putin's limit might be generally we've always thought whatever he does he'd probably never attack a nato country therefore you know risking a war with the united states but after what's happening in ukraine i think that's perhaps changing some calculations people are are, are thinking again so whether that comes into the, into the refugee situation, I guess we'll have to see whether this, this extraordinary generosity that we've seen, and it's not just kind of organized setups with food and, and water. There's also just people turning up to, to deliver supplies, to deliver lifts. So there's real generosity at the moment. You have to ask whether that's going to last in the long term, the medium term. That's what we'll have to wait and see.
4: Simon Owen, Fox News Radio foreign correspondent currently located in Poland. Simon, thank you for sharing those stories. Safe travels and keep up the great work.
2: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
6: From the Fox News Podcasts
5: Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech
6: Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is
0: Anthony Penny with your Fox News commentary coming up.
3: If you want a job, you can probably get one. If you don't like the one you have, it's easier to find something else. The monthly jobs report released by the Labor Department Friday shows more growth than the most new jobs created since July. President Biden says it's proof his policies are working.
4: We've learned that in February, our economy created 678,000 new jobs. 678,000 new jobs. Over the course of my presidency, our economy has now created 7.4 million jobs.
3: The report also shows more people getting into the workforce and making more money than a year ago, although inflation is running higher than wage gains. Well, there's overall strength and nuances. John Bussey is an associate editor at The Wall Street Journal. I mean, it, it is a big, big number, a good number. It
1: beat expectations, 678,000 jobs, uh, drove the uh, unemployment rate down to 3.8 percent, which is big. Uh, very low. Uh, it's not quite at the 3.5% of the pre-pandemic level, but it is, it is almost historically low. And it sure beats the almost 15% unemployment that we saw during the worst of the unemployment crisis in the pandemic in April 2020. So really good numbers. The nuances are that you're seeing increases in inflation across the, the economy because it's a very robust economy. We are growing uh, quickly. Uh, there are a lot of people looking for and finding jobs. It is a tight job market, which means that employers are having to pay more. Wages are up again uh, compared to last year by about 5%. A little bit slower increase than uh, the month before, but still you know very strong. These are all good things. But the, the good things sometimes have a dark lining, which is that they, uh, they contribute to inflation. When you have wage growth that f- flows through a company to prices because the company's gotta get that money to pay higher wages. And so they raise prices, inflation happens. And now the Fed has got a very tricky uh, uh, road ahead of it. It has to raise interest rates to slow the economy just enough to bring inflation down, but not slow it so much that it hurts the job market.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a a very thin tightrope here, um, maybe even more than in some other circumstances when they've had to make these interest rate decisions. Are you think that they're on the right path? Uh, The Fed chairman
1: says that he's expecting to raise rates a quarter point at this upcoming meeting in mid-March. He has signaled that to the financial markets so that nobody's surprised. Uh, and he said, "Look, it's going to be a quarter point. It's not going to be a half point. It's not going to be you know something out of the ordinary, but it's coming." Um, and that lets the financial markets kind of prepare themselves for uh, tightening uh, interest rates. What does that mean to the average consumer? If you if you've been out shopping for a house uh, the last couple of years, you know that. The interest rates are really low. It's a great time to be buying uh, a home or a car. And that's what's been driving up home prices, is that there's been increased demand, in part because borrowing costs are low. Well, those are about to go up. Uh, And it's unclear how far they're going to go up because inflation running at north of 7%, which is uh, the highest in decades, that's a big number to tame.
3: Are the interest rates going to bring down to a degree, home prices, car prices.
1: So uh, it'll what will likely happen is it will slow the increase in those prices. Um, if he raises, you know, too much, we saw this happen in the early '80s. It was uh, not necessarily unintentional. Uh, where Paul Volcker faced an even worse inflation uh, period of inflation in the early '80s, uh, he raised interest rates so much that you had a recession uh, where uh, employment. Unemployment grew again. I think that I think that, that uh, Powell wants to avoid that. What he wants to do is he wants to bring inflation down to what the Fed considers kind of normal, what it feels comfortable with, and that's around two percent. We're we're way above that right now, so he's going to have to f- find a way to uh, navigate the nuances, navigate kind of a minefield of variables out there.
3: We don't import a ton of oil from Russia. I think it's about 3% of our imports, and that's probably gonna dry up. I don't think there are a lot of new orders out there, if if, if any at all, since the war started. How does a, a Europe problem become an America problem in terms of energy prices? So some markets you gotta
1: think about as global markets. They really aren't just unilateral or bilateral markets. I'm trading with you, and, and, and that's all that really matters. We can find our oil someplace else. Maybe we can crank up a couple of our oil fields domestically, that's already happening. Um, put them back online, produce our own oil. You have to think about it globally, because there are big uh, purchasers out there. And when one supplier goes down, um, that means the overall amount of oil in the global marketplace goes down. And if demand stays high, and you're seeing very you know strong economic growth in a lot of countries, not just in the United States, um, when that Supply goes down, but demand stays strong. That means prices go up and prices go up across the board. Uh, And that affects the uh, price of oil that the U.S. does import from abroad, be it from Russia or from some other country. And that means that uh, the price of that increase uh, goes flows through the pipeline down to the refineries, uh, down to the suppliers of gasoline to the gas station where you pump your car. Um, and that means that you're gonna pay more for, for gas. So th- it's a big contributor, potential contributor
3: to inflation. We're coming up on uh, two years since all the coronavirus like shut, you know, shutdowns and lockdowns. All of this, how much of all of this inflation, the job market um, is, is still related to just this, this earthquake of the pandemic? Inflation, because of the supply chain, hasn't caught up with demand, for example. Um, then the job market coming back because cases are down. There's just so many correlations.
1: Yes. Um, I, I think that you put your finger right on it. Th- these things happen, and they are kind of one-off shocks to the global economics system. But uh, try to find an instance. You probably have to go back to World War II where there was a global uh uh, uh, economic crisis that resulted from something that affected all nations uh, in a way into in, the depth that the pandemic did. It shut down economies and it shut down manufacturing plants. And we're still recovering from that, even though there's strong economic growth in a lot of countries. You've still got shortages and disruptions in the supply chain. It's really hard for a global economy as integrated as ours is, where a product that's manufactured may cross borders dozens of times in the manufacturing process. This country does this, another country does that to the product, a third does this. And if you have borders shutting down and factories shutting down, it takes a long time for the global economy. We really do have to view it that way now, for the global economy to get back up on its feet. And to have the kind of just-in-time manufacturing, really streamlined manufacturing, where you place an order for a car in New Jersey and it gets manufactured in Hiroshima and it gets shipped to the dealership in New Jersey in a matter of days and weeks, uh, that, that, it takes a long time to get back to that point. Powell has to look at this right now and say, hey, we have inflation north of 7%. That's incredibly unhealthy. I've got to do something. I'm going to raise rates.
3: Some people are calling this a labor shortage. There are more jobs out there. There are more help wanted signs than there are people, you know, flipping those signs over and walking in the door and taking the jobs. Um, what's going to happen in some of these industries in, th- let's say, in three months? Are motels and summer restaurants going to have enough workers to operate?
1: Well, if the current situation is any indication, uh, you know, maybe not. There's still some people that have st- stayed out of the job market. They haven't come back in for various reasons. And it might be that they're taking care of kids at home. Um, uh, or they've taken care of somebody who has COVID or they're afraid to go back to work because it's not a healthy work environment. And so they're kind of cautiously, you know, hanging back a bit. So there's, there's still a surplus of labor that hasn't reengaged in the labor market. At the same time, retirements are up. Um, immigration is down. We relied on immigrants uh, in the history of our country to supply a lot of the labor and a variety of, of jobs in this country. Um, when retirements are up and people are willingly stepping out of the job market, that's going to crimp the market further. You're seeing, you know, businesses that previously never had to offer signing bonuses still having to do so. Um, that's, a, that's a sign of a very tight job market. On the other hand, there was a slight indication that that might be easing. Wages were up in February, but, but not quite as much uh, up from a year ago as in the previous month. Um, so now we're coming into the spring. The numbers are down. Consumers are are still really antsy. They want to get back out and, and be active and to travel. Um, the expectation is that consumption is going to stay robust. You had a lot of household savings increase during the pandemic. People weren't spending money. Now people want to spend it. So suggestion is consumer will stay healthy. Job market will stay healthy uh job uh market will stay tight inflation will stay up
3: look finally john um there are economists who are calling this you know a biden boom i guess part of it's the alliteration and part of it is the actual numbers with the job growth and the productivity and the manufacturing growth um but yet there's still this malaise because of the inflation and i'm not trying to you know, that extra 20 bucks to fill your tank is a very real thing Um, But at some point, I guess the hope is that the job growth and the wage gains stay and the inflation doesn't.
1: That's right. Um, And, you know, something I think that (laughs) I think that the economy happens uh, is uh, and is agnostic of uh, generally agnostic of political administrations in the short term. You know, a administration policy can have a big effect on the economy but it takes longer. So I think that what you're seeing uh, during the last administration and during this is the profound effect of the pandemic. And when an economy comes out of it, whoever happens to be in the White House at the time is gonna benefit from the growth of the economy. Because again, the consumer has a lot of pent up demand. Um, On the other hand, uh, taming the pandemic and addressing the pandemic, no question, contributed to the increase in uh, the consumer's confidence in the Biden administration, you know, addressing it straight on uh, and being truthful with 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 uh, with the population about what's happening uh, and taking it seriously probably did increase the consumers, uh, the consumers confidence.
3: John Bussey, Wall Street Journal associate editor, a fairly frequent guest and uh, an appreciated guest here on the Fox News Rundown. John, thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. My pleasure.
5: Here's a look at the week ahead. Americans can order more at-home COVID tests this week. The free test will be available to those who request them through covidtest.gov. Tuesday. President Biden's expected to visit Fort Worth, Texas to highlight support for military veterans. In last week's State of the Union address, the president discussed federal assistance for job training and housing and reduced VA health care costs for low-income veterans. He also spoke about injuries suffered from toxic fumes in Iraq and Afghanistan from burn pits. Also on Tuesday, Apple is holding another virtual event highlighting its latest products. Analysts say the company could unveil a low-cost iPhone with 5G capability along with a mid-price-range iPad. Apple's latest operating system may also be released. Saturday. Another partial government shutdown looms as a short-term spending bill recently approved by Congress expires. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has been working on a long-term bill to fund the federal government into the fall. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison Fox News.
6: Did you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say.
0: Alexa.
1: Plain news from Fox in Fox News.
6: It's the latest when you need it on demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Rate and review the Fox News rundown on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News
0: commentary. Anthony Penny. What's on your mind? Even as the Omicron wave recedes and Americans look to return to normal, we can see ripple effects from the pandemic that will be with us for years. In some cases, the long-term impacts of the pandemic mean we won't return to normal at all. In the realm of our children's education, we have the opportunity to make some shifts that will improve education outcomes, both for students and our country. For example, when learning shifted from schools to homes, parents had a view into their children's education with unprecedented clarity. Parents now know not only what their kids are learning, but also what they're not learning. When it comes to preparing students to be successful in college, in their careers, or in their roles as informed citizens, we're failing terribly. The U.S. remains in 13th place globally when it comes to quality education. For years, business leaders and parents have questioned whether students were graduating from high school with the skills needed to succeed in college and beyond. The questions surrounding this skill gap have not been around hard skills or content knowledge, but rather durable soft skills. Many employers are struggling to find standout entry-level candidates due to their lack of soft skills, and this is still a major hurdle for recruiters today, especially as they screen candidates coming out of the pandemic. Here's the rub. The skills most sought after by scholarship selection committees, university admissions officers, and employers are rarely directly taught in schools. The pandemic has exacerbated these lingering concerns surrounding the soft skills gap, This is because our kids missed out on a crucial component of their education that is integral to cultivating soft skills and leadership, extracurricular activities, and learning opportunities. In fact, it is beyond the classroom where so many of these essential skills are often learned. Extracurricular activities like sports, camps, clubs, speech and debate, and more, offer kids the opportunity to emerge as leaders and build their skills as communicators. Kids who participated in extracurriculars had better grades, better attendance, and overall better well-being. Without these programs in their full capacity, this generation of students missed out on leadership experiences, needed to succeed in higher education and ultimately the workforce. The key is to impart these competencies well before the university, not after the fact in the midst of their job search. Would you ask a baseball player to learn to pitch as he is heading to a major league tryout? No, it takes years of practice to master a craft. Shaping our kids into leaders should be the standard, not the outlier. Parents need to proactively integrate alternative programs and soft skills to supplement their child's core curriculum because the need for civic-minded young leaders has never been greater. This is Anthony Penny, former teacher and chief learning officer of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute.
6: You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. On the Fox News Podcasts Network.
5: I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of the Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to
6: the Ben Domenech podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.